Today, we're going to be talking more about the bigger picture of what do-it-yourself investment management looks like. To help you better understand this, I'm chatting with a client of ours about his experience taking this on in his first year in practice. Keep in mind, this route is definitely not for everyone. I think it really depends on your situation and personal interest. All of you are definitely 100% capable of doing this yourselves. But just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. My hope today is that you can learn what it looks like to do this the right way and gain more clarity on whether or not you really want to take this on yourselves. I'm excited to be here with you today and talk with a very special guest. He's a financial planning client of ours as well. He's taken the path of do-it-yourself investing. And in our planning firm, we have plenty of clients go in this direction. But what's been so special and unique about this situation and this particular client is how quickly and accurately he implemented our high-level investment advice. And after only about a year of doing this, I can confidently say he's doing it the right way and for the right reasons. My guest today is Dr. Chris Roach. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Excited to chat. We got started, what was it, about a year and a half ago working together? Yeah, I think I just was finishing fellowship about a year and a half ago, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how the world has changed since then, by the way. <laughs> yeah, after graduating critical care fellowship, coming in straight into a pandemic has been an interesting way to start off the career. So what would you say, like when we started working together, what would you say your investing knowledge and experience was like kind of around that time? So I think I knew kind of how the stock market worked. I had a vague understanding of what a ETF or a mutual fund was in the sense that it was a basket of other assets. But beyond that, you know, expense ratios and active versus passively managed funds, those kinds of, and even more the nitty gritty stuff, I didn't really have much of an understanding of. Yeah. So you had some kind of basic knowledge, but... uh yeah, that's correct. I, you know, I, I think when I was in college, I'd bought some stocks or what have you that, uh, you know, were, I thought might do well and only more than like a dozen shares, nothing serious. So our process in working with people, we help to kind of create a financial plan covering all aspects of your life. And then part of that is for most people is like an investment plan. And so then, you know, that's just the planning part. Then comes the executing phase. So we give clients the choice of whether to do it themselves or hire us to help manage those investments for them. So at that point, you chose the DIY path. What was your reasoning behind that? What prompted you to do that? It's a good question. There's probably several aspects to it to answer the question fully. I think my personality is I'm just a very curious person about the world. I mean, I still I still change my own oil and work on cars just because I like how, in learning how things work. And I think there's a lot of satisfaction in learning for me, learning how things work and having a, you know, doing a job that, you know, maybe you didn't know how to do before or just doing a job yourself. And while there's a inherent satisfaction that comes out of that. And I was very curious about finances and re, you know, rebalancing portfolios and, and just learning about the whole process and just learning about the market and the dynamics of everything. I think that was kind of the background that was, and I, I think in the beginning, I didn't even know if it was possible to do myself. I just was interested in exploring the possibility of doing it in the first place. Yeah, well, I think what's different about you and what I think is really important to point out is that you had interest and curiosity and also kind of lean DIY. Uh, you like kind of getting your hands dirty. You like to kind of understand how things work. And that's, I think that's just important to point out because not everybody's like that right yeah i suppose that's a big difference between me and maybe other clients you know some people would just rather have a professional like you and your group take care of all of that and have no desire to 
being involved in that. And I can understand that. I think it's just for me, like it was the desire to learn about it and be committed to learning about the process and, you know, just getting my hands dirty and doing it myself. So let's talk about getting your hands dirty. So like early on, you're getting started, you're just, you know, creating the account, looking for the different brokerage firm to, to choose from all those initial steps. What was that like kind of the early phase of getting everything set up? And it was challenging. In a sense, it was challenging. In one, it wasn't, I already had fidelity from residency. So my current occupation and my wife's current occupation both use Fidelity for the 403B, 401k stuff. So in that sense, it was easy because we were using the same brokerage, but it was kind of, it was kind of this really tall mountain that you weren't sure you could climb. You're kind of staring at the bottom, staring at it from the bottom. And it was a pretty overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn. Is this even possible? That's kind of, that's kind of how it felt in the beginning is if this might be a insurmountable task and to get from A to B was going to be a lot of effort. No doubt. Yeah. And I think a lot of people see that and they're like, I'm just going to pass on this or, but you kind of charged through it. What was the difference there? Like what made you say, I'm going to rock this out? I think it was just genuine curiosity about the markets and how they work and just wanting to be a part of the process of balancing the portfolio and actively contributing money from my paychecks and bank account into the respective accounts for retirement and, you know, kids, college funds and whatnot. It just seemed like a genuinely fun thing to get to know how to do and learn about. Yeah. Do, is there anything in particular you could think of that was most intimidating? Like, were there any, was it just the whole thing itself or? No, because I, I was pretty motivated to look up the bits and pieces, the nuts and bolts, if you will. But I think it was just looking at, maybe it's like a, you go to Ikea, you see in their showroom, like a really nice couch. And then it comes in a box that doesn't even look close to what the couch looks like. And you unpack it and there's just nuts and bolts and tools and pieces of wood everywhere. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be. What have I got myself into? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's, that was mostly it. I think, you know, I was, I was eager and definitely involved in like looking everything up that I possibly could, but it was just the overall picture that was intimidating. I think from A to B, from the foot to the top of the mountain. Yeah. I think I remember you were kind of going through security selection, I guess you would technically call it, but like picking the actual funds you were going to use and like that in itself can be intimidating when there, you know, there's a bajillion funds. I mean, you go, and then there's 17 different variations of every single fund and they each have different share classes. And a lot of what happens when you get in that lots of options mode is you freeze, you get paralysis analysis, but I think you did a good job kind of just taking a step, right? So you can always improve upon, it doesn't have to be perfect, I guess. And I think maybe that's even a challenge in medicine is because you kind of have come up with a career track that it's, I mean, I want my physician to be as close to perfect as possible. And I'm sure that's the expectation in medicine as you, you um, kind of seek to be as close to perfection as possible. But with investing, it's kind of messy. It's like, what is perfection? How do you, how do you measure that? And, but you seem to kind of gravitate easily into that mode of just making a decision, even though it wasn't necessarily the perfect choice, but what was it like that? What was that like for you? 
Well, I think it was a goal. I was very goal oriented from the get go. And I think I, I knew in my mind, I was like, well, I'm investing a cent until I get this thing figured out you know, get the framework up and start to, you know, dive into the nuts and bolts and don't invest a penny until you've got a good understanding of what you're doing. And, uh, and so when you get to that point, then you start to go from there. I remember, you know, I was going through, okay, well, my goal is just to be able to, I mean, see if I can even do this thing on my own and then do this thing on my own. And you'd sent over the asset allocation chart that you guys had. And I was like, okay, well, let's go from there. Let's find assets, you know, that I can purchase that would Let's make a spreadsheet. Let's dive into which assets I could use to to fill that that asset allocation chart. And you know, I just remember sending you like, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Maybe these ones here. And then you know, you were saying, well, okay, this you have some active and some passively managed. You know, you probably should not have both. You should probably stick to passive. In fact, so I had to learn about that. I didn't even <laughs> really know what that meant. And then. <laughs> You know, then having to, you said, okay, well, this is a good, these, this is good. They're all passively managed funds, but you know, you're going through for a growth stock here. Like, why not? Why, why are you doing that? And I was like, well, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. So, and large versus small and medium cap and all this other stuff, just, you know, back and forth having to, it's like, it was nice to have you through the process because, you know, I could have that freedom to make mistakes without investing anything, but you, you were there to guide me through and, mm ask all the right questions that would set me off on another, you know, Google search frenzy. Yeah. I think uh, there's different ways to learn. And our goal is to help people shortcut their way to learning something. And nowadays you can, that's the thing you can get all the information you ever want to know. There's information overload, you know, that's not a matter of not enough information. It's just a matter of sorting through all that. Was there any particular like sources outside of just talking with us? Did you read any particular books or do you have any kind of go-to places to get information on this type of stuff? Yeah, of course. Like you said, I mean, you are an invaluable resource because there's just, there's information everywhere and, and you can't possibly sort through all of that if you're starting from a pretty basic place of knowledge and investing in finance. So now that was, you know, you set me out, you sent me in the right directions when I needed it most. And that was invaluable but i think Bogleheads was excellent i found them to be you know very helpful and succinct there's some white coat investor stuff but i don't think they got into the nuts and bolts in their book at least their forums do but you got to be careful even in even on online forums because you, you can still get a lot of information and maybe not the best information and maybe not information that would be most useful to yourself well that's those are good i those i agree the Bogleheads is Excellent. They've been around for a while too. So you can go back like, you know, years and years on conversations and kind of see how things work. But so like, I know that first phase is always, you know, the most time consuming. What would you estimate just that kind of first hurdle of getting all the accounts set up and getting the mechanisms, you know, getting the funding going, getting, selecting this, the securities, like from start to finish, what would you estimate time-wise on your end? I would say a couple months at least. I think a few months probably. And setting up the accounts, figuring out how much you know needs to go where was definitely part of it. But like the dynamics of how you need to balance it took a while, and you know how you allocate between different you know brokerage account and your you know tax deferred account and your tax free accounts. I think that figuring that out was also a part of it, which I think I've learned 
more about that since I've started investing. But what do you th- what do you think hours wise? If you had to, oh gosh, <laughs> this is a oh, that's... Really, this is an unfair <laughs> question, but let's say, let's say we can give you some ranges like a zero to fifty, zero to twenty five, zero to fifty. I don't know some sort of general rough estimate. It's over a hundred hours. I don't. I mean, if, the thing is, you go down so many rabbit holes because, like you said, there's there's a plethora of information that you have to kind of sort through and figure out what's important and what's not, and you generally don't until you get into the rabbit hole, figure out what's important about it and what you need to know. Mm-hmm. It, over I would say over a hundred hours before I felt confident enough to get my feet in the water. And so you have now gone through your first, I guess, pretty big downturn. Um, and how has that been? I mean, it's, you're kind of early in the game, but have you felt any of the emotional tugs at all? Like the temptations or the, you know, whether to, like for instance i mean i even i feel it myself like when in march and april i was like that stock has lost x value it's a really good company i'm sure it's going to recover its temptation to potentially buy individual stocks or you know change the strategy or even be like well i do my monthly deposits on the first of the month but (laughs) let's wait how and see how this month comes out but did you have you felt any of those temptations or emotional pulls yeah of course that's part of being human i think is feeling that and i i have one of my best friends is a huge tesla investor and he's got a good chunk of change in there and he's been trying to get me in (laughs) in, invested in tesla and then once i got into the independent world of practicing medicine and everyone's got thoughts you know about different stocks that you should be investing in and i think you just have to you have to all that time I invested, you know, I was like, well, this is the plan and that's what I'm sticking to. And as long as I'm meeting all those, you know, requirements monthly, you know, into this account, X, Y, and Z money beyond that. And what I need, you know, monthly expenses or what have you, eventually I might try to pick stocks or something like that. But during the downturn, no, I mean, you know, I guess in a, a sad way, it was like, I was kind of excited because I have, you know, I got all this, I'm making money now and it's during a downturn. So I should be buying, buying, you know. Right. Well, that's the right mentality. I mean, that's a lot of people that tells me something about your level of knowledge and experience already. Like there's a fair amount of people that really just haven't gotten there yet. One of my, I have a colleague who actually, he said, I, because the market was doing so poorly, he said, I'm going to stop contributing to my retirement account. And I was like, no, that's the exact opposite. You, sh- you should now is the time, especially when you're in your 30s, you know, and the market is taking this huge dip. So, yeah, it's a, it, we had a fair amount of clients that stopped contributing or wanted to change the strategy and whatnot. It's funny how that, I mean, it re- repeats itself in the emotional times. It's like the worst time to do it, yet the most tempting emotionally or the most challenging time emotionally. When something, I guess, human nature, when something's broken, you're going to want to fix it. And people are just looking for ways to fix it. So what's been your routine kind of on an ongoing basis? So I know we talked a little bit about the front end, like, you know, picking the securities, setting up the accounts. You went with Fidelity, just, you know, it happened to be that you already had accounts there. So that was pretty straightforward. You kind of built an asset allocation based on our recommended asset allocation and kind of picked the different accounts to put your different securities in. That's all kind of what I would call... Uh, front end preliminary steps. And then you get into the phase of like starting to actually fund the accounts and regular funding and 
you know, rebalancing maybe even and tax loss harvesting and all, there's all kinds of ongoing tasks. So what's that look like for you? Yeah, it's kind of weird, but whenever I get a paycheck, this was much more in the beginning because you're kind of in that honeymoon period of, you know, you're doing this all yourself and now you're starting to make the money to do it. But there's kind of this honeymoon period where you're like very excited when you get that paycheck. And for me, it was like a lot of people, they're very excited because now they can go buy XYZ or they can go out to this high-end restaurant. For me, it was like, all right, now I can invest this in the stock market. You know, it was kind of like this nerdy moment where I was like, I all right, here we go. But uh, it's in the beginning, I was on the account all the time, just looking at stuff and kind of just watching things closely. But I have uh, just maybe a Google Sheets that I use that has, you know, pasted the asset allocation onto it and all my accounts are listed and how much is in each and then, you know, how much allocation to each asset class I have. And it helps you just say, well, I got to buy X number of this now. A little more tricky because you got to balance it between three different types of accounts and it has, you know, the tax implications that you have to consider for that. But no, it's pretty much a buy buy a weekly thing now that I just, you know, log into the Fidelity and see what's happening if there's um, you know, 4-3-B cash or whatever, I'll, or I'll transfer money from my bank account to put it into the brokerage account to go from there. But it's surprisingly, once once you make that, once you get past that initial first steps and get moving with it, it's surprisingly not that time consuming to do. Yeah. It's kind of a little task every biweekly, basically, like a, you know, check in every so as far as like time estimate for that's maybe harder, not quite as hard as the on the front end, but w- would you have a good idea of what that time commitment would be on a ongoing basis for this, just the kind of the upkeep and the regular check-ins maybe per month or something or not more than an hour per month, like uh, 30 minutes a month or something like that. 45, you know? Yeah. Somewhere between 30 minutes and an hour. Yeah. And honestly, a lot of the time is just sort of, changing the numbers in the spreadsheet and updating balances in the spreadsheet and stuff like that. So have you had, have you been able to do tax loss harvesting yet? No, but that's, that's something we're gonna have to talk about in a separate conversation. That's definitely something I it's so take a step back. So I have a book, like a little, we're kind of like, not like a diary book, but something you can carry around in your pocket. That's, you know, got pages on it. And I carry that around you wherever I go usually. And in that every month I have, okay, this is how much you need to put into this account. This is how much you need to put into this account. This is how much you need to put into this account. So everywhere I go, I'm carrying that with me and I can just look and see what I need to do. And it's also a to-do list in a longer term, you know, than the week, you know, days to weeks to months kind of thing, things that I need to get accomplished. And uh, also on there, besides the amounts that I need to contribute to accounts are <laughs> the, on the to-do list is to discuss with you tax loss harvesting because before it's a similar situation before I want to before I jump into it I want to have like a good understanding of what I'm doing and there are some pieces missing that before yeah, I jump into it yeah that's one of those things I would kind of that's in the ongoing management kind of category of, of tasks so the normal tasks ongoing are pretty small like you know incremental monthly check-ins you just have to basically direct where the new money goes. But then usually when there's volatile markets, you have kind of additional things to do, or you should be thinking about like rebalancing becomes important potentially if the market's all up and down because it messes up your percentages. And then some, something like tax loss harvesting can come into play and, you know, we can definitely 
circle back to that after this podcast, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's where the time commitment goes up a little bit, but it's not, it's not an insane, you definitely not the type of time commitment that you put in on the front end of this thing, but it does add a little bit more time. And you, it's something you have to kind of keep a pulse on, I guess, like our clients have, that have got, that are really busy, have sometimes a hard time keeping a pulse on, you know, what's going on, even in the markets, it's, you know, especially when it's not in the news, I guess. So that's kind of the challenge there. But so if you're talking with like a colleague of yours, that's, you know, where you were at, maybe you're still in training. So before we even started working together and they're just, just kind of thinking about all this stuff, they're thinking about investing. They're like, I, you know, what do I need to do? Which looking to you for advice on like how to navigate the transition, what sort of suggestions would you have for them in terms of, you know, how to, navigate that or, you know, sources of information or that sort of thing? Well, I've definitely referred you know, some people to you because I think like for me, when you're in the medical field, like you're pretty committed to just that. So it's really hard to find time to dedicate yourself to f finances. You've just been so committed to you know, med school and, and residency and fellowship. There's just no time to oftentimes, and especially if you have a family, there's just no time to get involved. So I definitely recommend, you know, a fiduciary like yourself, um, especially if there's no interest at all in financial stuff, you just want somebody who's going to take care of you financially. That's... Yeah, especially if there's no interest. Exactly. And I mean, we both know people that are like that and that's, you know, some people are busy and they're just not interested in it. So, you know, it's, they want to take care of their future. It's totally understandable. And that would be, I would first gauge what is your interest in doing it yourself. And if it just isn't there, then you got to have somebody who, is a, a fiduciary like yourself who, you know, isn't trying to sell you a product necessarily, but it's got your financial well-being um, as their first priority. Yeah. I think that's where you had it, had taken a good path there is what you had the interest of, you know, wanting to get your hands dirty and do it yourself. You had the, you know, you're at a good time in your life, like transitioning into practice. But you didn't go like completely on your own. You did a, a DIY, like you're not, you know, you hired an advisor and you're doing it yourself. So it's not, that's the other thing a lot of people I don't think realize is there's all kinds of arrangements out there for different circumstances. And I think there's not, there's a small segment of physicians that are, you know, wanting to completely do it a hundred percent themselves and have no input from others. And so you know, that's okay too. For those people, there's, you know, they're going to save a lot of, you know, fees paying other people to help them. But for most people, it's like, okay, more about what do you need help with and what's, what are your interests and you know, finding the right person to help is sometimes tricky, but so, yeah. So how did you connect with us through a colleague of yours, right? Is that how we originally got connected? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a good kind of way to look for, you know, help or maybe, but you have to be careful with that too, because, you know, you never know what your colleague is there, what their experience has been or who they've worked with. I have plenty of people I've come across that have found us after working with a kind of a sales product sales advisor and was, is typically recommended by a colleague and 
they eventually kind of figured it out. But yeah, we had uh, plenty of financial advisors come through and take us to dinners and stuff like that. Try to get us under their uh, under their wing. And uh, I have some of my colleagues during those dinners committed to their services and uh, haven't really touched base too much about how that's going. But you know, it's just yeah, I, I did learn the difference between a fiduciary and a financial advisor it was very important and uh, far more appealing to have a fiduciary. What are the dinners like? <laughs> I mean, they're pretty nice. You know, they, it's just a presentation and they're you're trying to, you know, explain what their services are. And, you know, it's usually, I think the ones we went to were at a nice, nicer restaurant. So kind of wined and dined a bit and, uh, it's, you know, kind of just getting your information down and, you know, they'll send you emails after that, try to get you to, you know, a few glasses of wine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, you know, it was concerning a little bit to me because you knew it's like, well, why are they whining and dining me? You know, what's, what are they trying to sell? You know, what types of people do you think went with that kind of service? So I think probably if I had to guess, it's probably people who are concerned about their financial future, but they just don't know anything about it. It took me a little while. I didn't know the difference between a fiduciary and a financial advisor. So I think people generally speaking want to, be financially secure and do the right thing for their retirement and everything. But I just don't think there's a lot of knowledge about in general about, you know, I have to explain all the time to colleagues what a fiduciary is as opposed to a financial advisor. I don't think they knew the difference and maybe they were like, okay, they're going to help me plan for retirement and I don't really know what I'm doing. So sure, let's do it. Yeah. I think that's part of the issue is a lot of the type of person that's, you know, probably not wanting to worry about it at all is going to hire somebody at the steak dinner event. They're just like, you take care of it. I don't want to worry about it. But that kind of person is also probably the most prone to getting in a situation where they're potentially getting taken advantage of. And so. Yeah. And I don't think, I think those people seeing people probably don't really understand what the difference between a financial advisor and a fiduciary is. And if they did, and they were really explained carefully what that meant, they might have, you know, not sought out a financial advisor as opposed to a fiduciary. Yeah. And maybe they, that's the other thing. The financial advisor is seeking them out. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. I guess I've not thought of that. They're always just kind of, they're sending out the, you know, the emails, the spam emails and just trying to get you to, I still get them to this day. I mean, really? but I never, I was referred to you by a friend. It's not, I never saw you advertised anywhere. And we certainly had had a steak dinner. Yeah. We, I, we can't afford a steak dinner. <laughs> I don't know. We, uh, our clients come to us. It's a different setup than the steak, steak dinner setup. That's kind of a sales approach, which is what ends up happening. It's a sales engagement typically. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I still don't think I've seen you advertised, but I, because I know I, I refer people to you. Whenever people ask like who I use. I mean, it's a, it's like a physician, you know, they might advertise, uh, on, you know, here and there and to get the brand, their name out, but you don't see physicians doing steak dinners to get try patients, to get, yeah. get patients in the door. My dad is a physician and he's in his fifties. He didn't know until I explained to him, he didn't know the difference between a fiduciary and a financial advisor. And he decided, Hey, I'm going to put half, he, he just sold his practice and he's going to put half of his money into a fiduciary versus a financial advisor and just see kind of where things go. He was like, I didn't even know that. So. Yeah, good. And well, it's uh, our industry has not done a great job, but we've kind of actually made it 
very difficult to tell the difference. We all kind of <laughs> look the same, unfortunately. But well, I think the reputation of a fiduciary is gonna, eventually just going to win out over that. You know, it's just a matter of time. You know, I, I'd rather pay for advice than somebody to sell me something that I don't necessarily need and might just be profiting somebody else. I think that model will just win over time. I hope so. I wish there were more people out there like you, but thanks for sitting down and chatting with me about this today. And I appreciate your time for sure. Of course. And thanks for everything you've done for us. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Take care. 